0: Vividly remembered for her Tony-nominated performance in Ain't Misbehaven, our guest today quickly moved beyond that musical review and musicals in general to notable performances and plays as diverse as Twelfth Night, The Caucasian Chalk Circle, Sorrows and Rejoicings, Fabulation, and Stunning. At the same time, she began a somewhat parallel career as a playwright of such deeply personal works as Pretty Fire, Neat, In Real Life, and The Night Watcher, currently at New York's primary stages. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to introduce you to actress and playwright Charlene Woodard. Hi, Charlene. Hello, Howard. I said somewhat parallel because you both write your plays and you, with one exception thus far, are the entire cast of your plays. Um I was reading up and and someone asked you, do you see yourself as a playwright or do you see yourself as an actor or do you define yourself? How do you define yourself if someone asks nowadays?
1: I'm an actor who has written five plays. (laughs) I I write from the doing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm a storyteller. I tell stories. And uh, I think what has made me write a play is the fact that I tell stories. I'm a storyteller.
0: Well... Since you say that, um, as I was preparing for this, I went back to read each of your plays. And when I picked up Neat and was reading the introduction, I thought, wait a minute, I've read these words before. (laughs) And went back to uh, Pretty Fire. And sure enough, the first two paragraphs of your introduction, not the entire introduction, were precisely the same. So mm-hmm. I thought, as a way of starting off this conversation, I would ask you to just read those two paragraphs that obviously were important enough to be in both introductions.
1: Okay. When I was in first grade, my teacher sent a note home to my mother informing her that unlike the other children, I never brought anything in for show and tell. Instead, she wrote, I kept the class very entertained by telling them all of my family's business. My mother put an end to that, very quickly. And as I grew older, I honed my verbal skills at family functions, where cousins would compete with aunts and uncles in sharing the events of their lives. Only the cleverest, the most entertaining, and the loudest ever made it to the end of their story.
0: So, presumably, you were the most entertaining and the loudest because you built a career around it. (laughs) I don't want to spend I don't want to give away the stories of your plays but so can you tell me we don't have to ask where your ideas come from but but how do you decide what elements of your life are going to make a play what let's let's talk first about the current show the night watcher
1: mm-hmm.
0: how did you decide upon the content of the night watcher
1: mm-hmm. Well, um, ever since I got married 18 years ago, uh, we, uh, my husband and I have been involved with children, nieces, nephews, uh, godchildren. I have 11 godchildren, 25 nieces and nephews. And I have all these friends. I have friends who have children, um, and their, their children are mine. They've shared them with me. And uh, so I have loads of uh, maybe 40 kids, really. And uh, I was sitting with nothing to do in L.A. but TV and film. And um, I hadn't written a play in years. And um, the Ohio Playwrights Conference called, and they said, Catherine Kimmel called, and she said, Charlene, do you have anything for us this summer? I said, oh, did I? I don't know. No, I don't. When's the deadline? She goes, I'm giving you a month. And I sat there, I hung up, I said, okay, I'll answer that. You know, when the universe reaches out and says, gimme, you know, I I always try to say yes. And that came out of nowhere. So I sat down I said, what is on my mind? And as I sat there, just writing on my yellow pad, my kids were on my mind. All of them. And the things that they were going through and the things that they were exalting in, their successes and their failures, their... Uh, dreams, they were on my mind, their secrets. Huh, I started writing and just writing. And in a month, I I sent something to Ohio, and they said, you're in. And when I went there, I could really look at that, all those, I'd say, 300 pages and figure out what what am I really going to focus in on with these kids. I knew I was going to talk about the kids and our involvement and being... A, uh, a, a couple that has no children by choice. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. It was interesting to me. So mm. what is interesting to me is what I write about. I also ask that question, what makes this night different from all the rest? Why am I going to stand up and tell people some stories? Well, and a most amazing thing happened. Somebody called me one day and offered me a baby. Well... That's a great story right there. And I started telling these stories and telling these stories until I had gotten them so that I could look at the person I'm talking to and know that that person uh, lived the story with me.
0: You said you sat down and started writing and wrote 300 pages. You just used the phrase, I started telling people these stories. Mm-hmm. What What is the process for you?
1: The process is to tell them. The process mm-hmm. is to go to the dinner party mm-hmm. and everyone's sitting around talking and everything. I'm living in this world. I know that I'm living in this world of kids for 30 days.
0: Right. But you're not pulling out a manuscript at no. the dinner party.
1: No, no, no. I'm telling stories. And so, you know, someone says, Charlene, what have you been up to? Oh, well, I just helped my um, my godchild. Uh, I've been helping her with a, a monologue to get into college. You know, Mm -hmm. and uh, then I'm telling her what, telling them what happened when she came to the house and she chose one of my monologues from one of my plays and how I told her, oh no 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 no, don't use that. You
0: know, why did you tell her that? They're great plays.
1: First of all, I didn't even want to help her get into drama school. I didn't want to be (laughs) responsible for that. You Mm -hmm. know, I just didn't. I told her do do something else. Use ask your father. He's a teacher. Why are you coming to me? She says, I want to do it. And then she tells me her modern piece is going to be from one of my plays. It just felt like such responsibility, you know. Mm -hmm. And I told that story of of, of how we were working and, you know, then then you realize, ah, that's a good story.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: How we worked. How she ended up at UCLA. You know, how she texted me that day. Got in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. How I communicate with them now with this texting and... (laughs) <laughs> you know, forget answering a phone call. But um, all the ways of communi- – then we're all around the table talking about how you communicate with children. And, you know, we keep talking and talking. And that It's in that that then – not until I have talked that story out perfectly will I write it down. I never hmm. write it down first.
2: Hmm.
0: But when you say 300 pages, maybe you write big. But presumably, the show that I saw at primary stages is not 300 pages long.
1: Oh, now it's about 40 pages.
0: How do you go from dinner party conversation to page to theatrical piece? What's the the process? It's all
1: in the doing. Mm -hmm. It's all in the doing. Say I have – I went to Ojai with all those pages, Mm -hmm. Ojai Playwrights Conference. I had – keith bunin there to be my director and we sit in a room in a cabin a little ha- a little room and um he, i i have uh, my music stand with my script there and uh, but what i'm doing is on my feet i'm telling this story i'm living it mm-hmm. i'm I, the actor takes over i've got this c- sort of an outline but I'm living it in on my feet, and as I say this, or say that, or say this, or say that, I grab it. Oh, that was good. That was good. I remember. There it is. There it is. And um, and uh, then I say, Oh no, this is too exi- This is too uh, frenetic and crazy. I'm throwing it out. Do you record yourself? If it's uh, in the beginning, I used to record myself. Mm-hmm. I no longer have to. I can remember what I said and just like, oh, let me and hmm. write that down, or uh, and I can remember and say it again. I can remember them now. In the beginning, I did tape, you know, mm-hmm. so I could do it. Um, but I just uh, in the doing, I just do it like it's as if it's an improv. You know, and the more you tell a story, the more refined it gets. You know, if someone goes ooh, then you know you're in. If someone says oh my goodness, you know you're in. If someone falls asleep, you know, get rid of it, fix it. Why is that ridiculous? That's not. I'm not going to add that. You Hmm. know, if I get tired, it's gone.
0: (laughs) Have you ever changed your shows once they're up and running?
1: Never. Never. I treat the show like it's a play, a regular play. I lo- my plays are solo plays. I call them a play with one actor. I don't call them one-man shows and all that business because people have these, these uh, standards for those. An hour and 15 minutes, no intermission, blah, blah, blah. I hate that. <laughs> no. Theater to me is uh, uh, you have to have an intermission to me. Hmm. And I have not been able to tell my entire th- um, evening of storytelling in 15 minutes. I have to cut too much, hmm. you know. And uh, why? We're trained to two acts. Let's do it, if I can do it, mm-hmm. you know. And once again, it has to fit on me, you know. I remember when we were doing Pretty Fire, and I had that that trip down south. I had an entire story just to get down south that was pretty fabulous. And one day I came into rehearsal and said, we've just got to get to Savannah, y'all. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i cut the entire trip down hmm. i just cut it i've done it many times in real life i remember this i'm talking about n- in real life is about what happens when i left drama school and came to new york city and there i was in hair i had a fabulous story about getting naked on the new nu- in the nude scene and everything after i've told everyone oh i'm not getting naked you know oh, it's not the thing I, and um and the thrill of getting naked, and it was a fabulous story, really funny. And I came into rehearsal one day and I said to Daniel, Daniel, I had an epiphany. He says, I hope it's the same one I had. I said, hair goes. And everyone was like, what? Daniel said, "Ah, oh, that's the one I had. Hmm. You know.
0: Well, that raises the question. You mentioned Keith Boonan out out at Ojai. Daniel Sullivan has directed several of your shows. Yes. What is your process with the director? Again, it's your life, and you're telling it, and you're the one on stage. How do you interact with the director in that situation?
1: What I love about working with Daniel Sullivan is that he is bright and smart, and he's funny, and he's musical, and he knows the correct question to ask that illuminates everything. He'll ask a question that'll make me get to the truth of it. I might be fishing around on the surface not brave enough to actually go to the real kernel of that story or hiding it because I've, already, I've always hidden the kernel of that story, you know, not being absolutely upfront. And he knows when to ask. I mean, he asks. I don't know how he does it, but he asks these questions that make you say, oh, my goodness, I don't want to go there.
2: Hmm.
1: I don't want to go there because, and he says, uh-huh. But he also makes the room safe. No one's there but Daniel and me, a stage manager and her, her assistant. So the room is safe. We're all telling stories on breaks. Everyone's Giving it up. Everyone's sharing. The room is a a room full of sharing. So that when he does come up with a question, it's like, oh. And the minute I know that I cannot go there, that's when I know that's gold. And I'm going to go digging there, you know. And I love to keep digging for the gold. So that's why I end up with so much. Then I put it on my body physically and see if I can do it.
0: The way you're telling this, I have to ask, is there something therapeutic in being pushed to tell these stories to a point where you may not have wanted to go? Or is it still just about putting on a show?
1: Hmm. I don't know if it's therapeutic. um, Maybe in that moment Mm -hmm. it is, you know. Perhaps in that moment, but... You know I'm one of these people once it once I speak it I'm healed.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: I don't hold on to things, you know. I um I don't I don't need to be healed every night from the show uh I don't use the show for for that reason. I was
0: speaking more in rehearsals than than the show because, as you say, once the show is set, it's set. But I, I, I don't I, I don't want to pr- pursue that. Let me ask you from a different perspective. Um, uh, I was watching the Today Show yesterday, and of course Carrie Fisher is doing her yes. one woman show in her case, um, and she made a comment that she shows it around to all of the people that she talks about in it and if they don't like something she'll cut it
1: that's right i Is do that, that true for you too i do that yes
0: so are there stories you still you wish you could tell that that members of your family or your friends have asked you not
1: to? oh i have a story that uh, yeah my friend said um oh Charlene, please don't tell that you know that yeah okay
0: Mm -hmm. And in in one of the plays... And then,
1: of course, I have my sister, Allie, Mm -hmm. who when she heard the first play, she was like, you can't do that. You can't tell these things about me, Charlene. I said, Allie... You were five, six, seven years old, Allie. It's going to be okay. She goes, my kids don't know these things about me, you know. I said, Allie, please. I had to. If I took Allie out of Pretty Fire, what would I have? I'd be an only child, and I wasn't at that point. I had Allie like a twin sister, you know. So I had her come to opening night, an opening night at Manhattan Theater Club, my sister sat I had her sit in the back so that no one and no one knows she's there. I didn't tell anyone Allie's coming. When I came to the party after the show, Allie was in the lobby of the of the restaurant signing autographs.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, she saw how it was used. She saw that it was a night of theater, lights, sound, music. She's you know, it's different when you read it. And she saw that it, it you know that I couldn't have gotten rid of her.
0: When your family comes to the show, you say she sat in the back. She hadn't seen it before. Oh, do you want to see them?
1: It's always traumatizing when the family comes to the show. Okay, you know I've do- I've done all three shows at Manhattan Theater Club. They now they love to come to a matinee because they take over. You see, when they come, the things that the audience is uh, th- that relates to is only half of what the family's relating to because of their all you have to say is uh grandmama and there they are <gasps> oh. <laughs> you know w- w- at one of my plays they gave me two standing ovations before we got to intermission and that's something when you know 15 people stand up and clap because they remember the whole story they are not ge- you know everyone's getting a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this and the family remembers the whole event and they know, you know what I mean, when they came. So uh, it was—it's very disrupting, different rhythms. It's crazy, and um, I prefer them at the matinee, so that the, it's not just, um, oh, it's crazy. They—they're they're wonderful. And they laugh and they cry at the total opposite pl- places that the regular audience hmm. would. Oh no, they see a different show.
0: I was thinking to myself, you know, is, is life with you like now someone living with a stand-up comedian always wondering if they're creating material for you? It sounds like yeah. they may enjoy it so much. They, do they come to you and say, why don't you do this one?
1: No. My family, I must tell you, they're so used to my being a creative. It's not, it's, they think of this as my job. You know how they don't discuss their jobs? Mm-hmm. They go to it. They work well. They get their vacations. They're off on weekends. <laughs> no one's sitting around discussing their jobs. They don't sit around discussing mine. I, my mother even said, Charlene, I was in um, in, the, in the Blood, Susan Laurie Parks' play. Great play. My mother said, uh, Charlene, do I have to come? I mean, it's, it's just, this is your job. I'm told it's kind of edgy. Do I have to be there? Do you need me there? I said, no, Mommy, you don't have to come.
0: And that doesn't hurt you?
1: No. I've been doing plays (laughs) for 30 years. If they had to come to all of my work, it would be too much on them. You know, I don't Hmm. need them to do that. I have a family of friends that I have found, that I have created, who have to be there, who love the process, who love the theater, who live for it. My family lives for me, Hmm. not my job. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, I'd i be lost if well, my friends, that family of people that I've created here in New York and L.A. and Seattle, if they did not come, that would devastate me, you know, if they didn't see what was important to me.
2: Hmm.
0: Let's jump back. You've already – In your own words, recounted um, that you were always a Mm storyteller. You were, and and it was it was part of the family ethos. But when did you come to understand the structure of not just storytelling, but that other people's stories being told through theater? When when did you actually start performing in front of people other than your own family?
1: Oh that oh my goodness. It happened when my grandmother died. And um that was major, you know, when you have a grandmother all your adult life, grandparents. I was blessed that way. And um grandmama died uh, right after I got married. And I was in mourning. I had just moved to L.A. I, I joined a church, a mega church, this fierce church, West Angeles Church of God and Christ in L.A. Uh, Bishop Charles Blake is the pastor. Um, I signed up for a women's retreat. Hmm. I needed it. I felt I needed a retreat. I needed to something to help me deal with my mourning. And after I signed up, the bishop's wife— May Blake called me up one day and She goes, Charlene, I've noticed that you're on the list And you're coming to the the retreat I saw you on Broadway in New York City I know you sing Can you prepare 20 minutes of song For the first night of the retreat Just to entertain the ladies while we eat I said, oh no, Sister Blake, I cannot I'm in mourning, I cannot do it I, I, I lost my grandmother I can't sing 20 minutes of songs She said, well, I'm sure you'll come up with something So I was upset. I went home. I was like, Harris, look at this. I can't, I can't, how am I going, all I can think about is grandmama. And my husband said, well, why don't you talk about her? I said, it's all I can think about. And so for two weeks, I talked about my grandmother and it occurred to me that I'm an artist because of her, something she did when I was 12 years old. So I said, that's the story I'll tell, how she made me join the church choir, how she manipulated me, how she – and I had that experience. So I prepared this this story, a 15-minute story, I thought, maybe 20 minutes. And um, I'm sitting there. I get to this uh, hotel in Irvine this I'm like, what is this? I thought we were going to be in the woods somewhere. I thought it was going to be cozy. Four hundred fifty women are in the ballroom, sitting at circular tables that night for dinner. Hmm. On the first night, I'm, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a, this. I thought we would be some intimate little thing where I would just sit around and share t- my grandmother. It would be the beginning of my healing. I thought, hmm. and. Um, 450 women, they're all at these tables. They all are dressed up. Everyone lo- Everyone's dressed up but me. I'm looking like a girl from the woods, you know. <laughs> um, and um, just to get up and get onto the platform, it was so frightening. I'd never done this before. I, it was, Now I know it's a huge amount of people. I mean, this is a performance, and I have to get up there. I said, well, I'll just I have to sing Grandmama's hymn. I'll sing her song, and that'll help me get from this table to that platform. So as I'm singing her song, a cappella, to get to the mic, 450 women joined in, and they sang with me. They knew my grandmother's hymn. I gave my first line, and they knew just where I was coming from. I realized five minutes into it that these 450 women had grandmothers, and maybe they lost them at the time that I lost mine. I told that story, and I threw in some little songs. They sang them all. They were the songs that I sang in my junior choir at that time, and they were all from that, and they helped sing those snatches of songs. They understood. They finished my sentences. They took their napkins, and they waved those napkins. Hmm. And I cannot tell you what it was like. To share that story with them, I could see them. I could bounce off of them. I added stuff. The, the story lasted uh, uh, like 40 minutes. Hmm. And, I mean, really, really, to this day, and I say it all the time, that was the best night of theater I ever had. The give and take, the, uh, the understanding that something so personal was so universal, you know, I had a healing from it. Hmm. All of them, they, they, they lined up, 450 of them, to shake my hands at the end. The old women said, you might have lost your grandmother, but now you've, you've earned a new one. Hmm. And the women thanked me. The women who were my age thanked me for telling their story. They had never heard their story told. And, ah, it was a night. I said, okay, uh, uh, Harris, if I had four more stories, this could be a night of theater. (laughs)
2: Hmm.
1: This is what I knew, you know? This is what I knew. And that was my first experience of telling a story formally as a form of entertainment. It didn't just fly out of me. Hmm. I, like, I planned to do it.
0: From the when you were 12 and you were forced into the choir by mm-hmm. your grandmother
2: mm-hmm.
0: how did you go from that choir to the young woman who believed she was going to come to new york and only do the great plays of chekhov and 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 the others that you name in 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 real life when did you decide to formalize what had been around the dinner table and at church?
1: When my mentor, John Veely, whom I met in 10th grade in high school, when he opened the double doors of the theater to me, it was one thing to sing in church at the age of 12 to all those people and realize that this little person at 90 pounds had a whole lot of power with a microphone. And, you know, my passion for singing those songs, because every time I sang gospel I thought this might be the last time Grandmama's hearing this. I thought she was she she had asked before I die, could you please? Uh, jo- I'd love to hear one of my grandchildren sang a solo in the Wilderness Temple Church of God in Christ Junior Choir. That's what got me in the choir. We thought she was going to die, and that we want we wanted to answer her dying wish. So I joined it. But and so every time I sang, I was singing for Grandmama. And it was a it, it was a great thing, and I loved it. But John Veely turned me on to a man named William Shakespeare. He turned me on to a man named Tennessee Williams. I did this property is condemned in tenth grade. We did um, Antigone. We did oh my goodness. He opened up the doors of the theater to us, and that's what we did. And most people in high school they do musicals. We did not. Hmm. We, and then in my senior year, he was thinking, what do we do for Charlene in her senior year? What play? What play? There was nothing that we could do for this senior. You know, there was nothing really that would mean everything to me hmm. as a black woman right then and there in that time. We said, let's write our own play. So we all wrote a play in my senior year about growing up in Albany and i made all these kids audition who were not in the theater department i went and found them and I, we wrote about growing up black in albany and john said come to the audition with poems songs anything a dance anything and that's what we did i gathered all these kids from all over that high school who never were, who were never in the theater department and brought them together it was the hardest thing we'd ever done but we came up with a play called anyone round my goal is it oh my goodness It was just amazing. It was amazing. So when I left to go to college, what school, what are you going to study? It had to be theater arts. It had to be acting because I saw the power of words, not just music. I knew the power of music, but I was also turned on to the power of words without music. Major drama. I loved it. You know, I loved it. And it took over. And so I have a gift. Yes, I can sing. But you know what? I wanted to develop this other thing. How do you phase people without music? Hmm. And as
0: someone who'd already been performing in so many different ways, even at such a young age, did you find studying it freeing or did it suddenly put structure in a place where you'd never wanted or needed it before
1: i loved it you know what i'm the kind of thing when i went to school at the goodman school of drama they said dr bella itkins said we are not here to tell you what's right you know what's right you can feel what's right we're here to tell you what's wrong
2: Hmm.
1: all who can't handle it will leave but whatever isn't working we're going to help that so that you have more things that's working that feels good than Hmm. that feels bad and I loved that. I grew up like that. You know, I didn't grow up with everyone, go, oh, fabulous, Charlene, lovely, lovely, lovely. It was just like, hit it, do it. There's the challenge, meet it. That's the way I grew up. I've watched people in my family. You didn't see them, eh, my job, moaning and carrying on. They were like, oh, I've got a job. I make a living. My dad was like, I support my family. Look at me, hmm. you know? And everyone was always working for improvement and growth. You see, I am the granddaughter of sharecroppers. All they wanted us to do, they showed us, here are the challenges. Let's see you step through that. That's all I've ever done my whole life. Hmm. Everything I've done has been absolutely difficult. Nothing has ever been just served up to me on a silver platter. I don't know if I even know how to live and work without uh, handling the challenge and they handle it. I watch my people handle it with a plum you know and um, and I figure if they can do it, I've privileged me. I can certainly do it
0: hmm. So when you got out of school straight to New York?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Came straight to New York and had my five monologues. I was ready, you know. And I never got a chance to use them because right away I went to a a musical, an open call for a musical, and um, managed to get involved in these musicals. I must tell you, there's a big difference between singing in church on Sundays and on Wednesday night choir rehearsal and singing eight shows a week. And what Let I alone
0: singing the music from hair.
1: And and then but the big trip, hair was fun. I was in the chorus, I'm in the tribe, I'm just he hey, hey, you know, that was okay. It was stressful because I was doing the hair, the movie, and hair the play at the same time. Hmm. But what was tough was that ain't misbehaving. Because ain't misbehaving was where I had to learn to sing other than what I was singing. They, even for the audition, they say, prepare two forties numbers. I'm like, the 40s, I don't think I even like that time period. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, oh, my goodness. And you're singing at the top of your range. All five of us were singing at the top of our range. I had never sung in my life second soprano. Oh, I told them, I'm an alto. They said, well, we need you to fill this second soprano slot right in here. I said, but it's too high. They said, it's all too high for all of us. But you know what? You have to make, who was it, Andre DeShields, that told me, the audience wants to see you do what they cannot do. Otherwise, they're going to go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And there we were every night meeting it. And those five people taught me how to work. Uh, those four people, Nell Carter, Armelia McQueen, Ken Page, Andre DeShields, they gave me lessons in how to do a musical. And Andre said, you'll never stop doing them, Charlene, until you get it. Hmm. And so I did musicals for 14 years here in L.A., in in New York City.
0: Hmm. In the play, in real life, you, you make it sound almost as if there was a bit of a hazing. I mean, you say they taught you, but they mm-hmm. it, it certainly seems like it was tough love you were well, going through there. Well, you know in there. the
1: theater how it is. If you do that first read-through and you're not fabulous, your cast is looking at you like, uh-oh, she's weak. We need her to be strong. Oh, she's in the lead. Up, oh, she. Uh. Theater people are like cold-blooded. You are not in the club until you prove to us that you belong in the club. Hmm. So... If you're sitting up in rehearsals, sitting up in here, you know, I had three weeks to learn that play. They had done the workshop at at Manhattan Theater Club. I had three weeks, and they were like, rise up. This is our hit. I I remember asking, do you guys think this is going to be a hit? Andre said, we are a hit, darling. Hmm. You know, rise up. Rise up. That's those two words. I, I, I live, I think, by those two words. Hmm. You know? Yeah.
0: You said, you know, you did musicals for 14 years, certainly in the play in real life and what you've already said. You thought you were coming here to be an actress in plays mm-hmm. and do words. Mm-hmm. So was there a process for you to shift out of being Charlene woodard mm-hmm. tony nominated musical actress to then be seen as Charlene woodard mm-hmm. dramatic or comic actress what did you have to do
1: juliet taylor um cast me it, it, for the sundance film lab back in the 80s and i didn't know what that was at the time it was new and Redford had that film lab out there, and they brought all these actors in to help the new filmmakers uh, realize their, their, their films. And um, I love that she uh, uh, hired me to go out there and play this woman, this woman that was so, oh, I, I did that. And when I did that and it was on film, the people from the actor's studio who's in, who were involved with that film lab They saw me, Carlin Glenn and Pete Masterson, and they invited me to the actor's studio.
0: Before you go on, who was that woman? Because you say, oh, that
2: woman.
1: It was a character in a film. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember her name. I don't think she had a name, Mm -hmm. actually. But she was a woman who was killing herself from hooch. You know, Uh, she was down south. It was the Robert Johnson film about Robert Johnson. And, and she was, the scene is I'm in a wheelbarrow because people have to carry me around in a wheelbarrow. I've so uh, e- eaten up my body from bad liquor, drinking mm-hmm. hooch. And I'm outside of a, um, what is it, a, one of those speakeasies. And I, I just want a drink from someone. Give me a drink. And he mm-hmm. comes up with a bottle. And there are all these ways of my trying to get him to let me have a sip of his liquor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm in a wheelbarrow. It was Unbelievable. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. It was so oh dark and eek and mm. So um they saw my work and they knew that I'm not like that lady. So they invited me to the actor studio as an observer and I had three months to be there to then audition and try to become, you know, a member. Um and my involvement in the actor studio changed everything because then I got back to I got a teacher. Uh, I started working only just as if you're going to school all over again because there are certain uh, muscles that you use for uh, a musical and there are other muscles that you use for a play. And I started, it's almost like I went back to school and I worked and worked and worked and took classes. And then I realized, wow, my best work now is in class. Hmm. So I said, maybe, maybe I couldn't even get an audition here for a real play, you know? So I said, hmm, maybe if I go to L.A., they'll let me work with words. And it's ironic that I went to L.A. to work with words in film and TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I really dug in into the theater. Because once I got there, the first thing is, George Wolfe called us at Charlene, do you want to do my play at the public? Uh, The Colored Museum. I had done the workshop for him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, George, I just... Not the Colored Museum, um, the Zora Neale Hurston. Spunk. Spunk. I had just done the workshop. And I said, George, I just moved to L.A. You know, but George Wolfe knew my dream of being an actor. So did um, Joe Papp.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: Joe Papp invited me to do Lady Mortimer in Henry IV. Of course, he, clo- he, he cut that scene um, the night <laughs> before the first preview. And that's another story. But he gave me that. So I learned all that Welsh and all that stuff. And then they called me again, George. Um, 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 George called me for the Caucasian Chalk Circle. And, and you know, and Joe gave me Twelfth Night. You know, those two people opened the door to my, you know, doing plays so that when I did write Pretty Fire, I, you know... Uh, there were people who knew I could do that kind of work,
2: hmm.
1: but you know I had a dream to be an actor who worked with words, and I, if I had to write the play to prove it to anyone, I I'd write the play. But the main thing is I I just had to answer that call that said, you know you can you can do it without a song.
0: So did you in fact? I mean you you've mentioned. You know, Caucasian chalk circle. Um, already, Pretty Fire came after that, but was was part of the impulse to show people what you could do that they might not yet have seen. Is that part of what made you become a writer?
1: No, I mean, I, I feel like I became a writer by by accident. You know, I told that story about Grandmama months later i'm in la auditioning for i told my agent i don't want to audition for anything that i have to work for free <laughs> i came from new york i must say i was pretty spoiled here everything i worked for unless it was somebody's workshop i got paid for and in la they have that equity waiver business and i said i'm not doing it it's too, I, I put too much into a play and it's all i do i won't do any auditions for tv or film or anything i'm just going to do the play that's the way i work um, he said, "Charlene, please audition for this. I, the director is a friend of mine. It's just a favor." So I did this for my agent, and I told—I was in this little theater, seventy-five seat theater, with these you know, these young uh, company. And they said, "We create, we we reproduce new works for new artists." And I said, "Well, okay, I'll do this play you want me to do if you do my play." They said, "Okay." So we did the play it was not good but um on the closing night we had a party in the theater and they invited me into their office and they said um Charlene you're next your play is next and they threw me the keys to the theater. Hmm. And I caught them. Have you ever had the keys to the theater? Oh, it doesn't get any better than that. Hmm. I had the keys to the theater. I don't care if it was 75-seat little thing. I loved it. And I had to answer that call. And they said, what's your play? I said, oh, uh, they said, can we have it in a week? I said, how about we have a reading of it in the week for your board? Because I knew I had no play. I had mm-hmm. one story and an idea that maybe if I added four more, we'd have an evening of theater. So because they threw me the keys, I went home, looked in all my journals. What can I do? What is the world I'm living in when grandmama did that? Did, did, did. Oh, oh, oh. I will add four more stories from this time of growing up from birth to 12. That's what I'm going to do. And then I just, you know, went through my journals looking for mm, 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 the whole, what's this. with. And then I cre- I, a week later, I came to them. I told them three stories. And they said, okay, who's your director? When are you going to get started? I said, and we won't need any set. We're just going to do it with a black box and um, just me And uh, because I can't get anyone else to do it with me. You see, I didn't plan on doing a solo play like that. But you don't get people to join in with you to do a play for free in L.A. At that time, I didn't know any people. So I, out of necessity, it was just me with no set. And I decided no props. That's the challenge.
0: Now, it's interesting. In the published editions of your plays, you've said that you have done these as pieces for one actor, but you are not averse to them being done by multiple actors.
1: You know, anyone who wants to do my play, do it.
0: So have you ever gone and seen your plays done either simply by another actor or, in fact, with a company?
1: I've never seen them done, no. Mm Mm-mm. No. Do you
0: avoid it or just never had the? No, opportunity? No, I've never
1: had the opportunity. They send me the reviews. These women are kicking with you know with these plays, and they send me the reviews. I love that in colleges they do um, pretty fire with five um, actors multiculturally because it's five separate stories, and um, I I I just think if anyone if anyone wants to do it, it just thrills me to no end. I haven't had time to go see it. I would love to. I've tried. You know, at one point, I was in La Jolla last season, um, workshopping this play, and um, someone was doing my play just uh, a half an hour away, but I, I couldn't, it was the same time, so I couldn't hmm. do it.
0: Since you began writing, when you've been in new plays, do you have a different perspective on the author's role, presuming the author's around, um... Do you have a temptation to talk to the author about what they're doing or do you can you separate Charlene Woodard playwright from Charlene Woodard actress and
1: You know I don't do it that technically.
0: Mhm. <clears throat> so I mean and my
1: whole creative process is all of everything. Whatever is whoever is in the room at the time, whoever can answer the question at the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the actor the actor answers the question. Sometimes the playwright answers the question. But um I don't make a well, right now I know the actor is at work because mm-hmm. that play is done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My play is done. Now the actor is working from now on. But up until yesterday, that play was being done. You know, it was the playwright and the actor always at work.
0: Right. But I'm asking when you're in Susan Laurie Parks' play in The oh, Blood, oh. do you do you say to Susan Laurie Parks, what about this? Oh, this d- isn't working for me. <laughs>
1: But I I, I could do that. I I never said that to, um, oh, you know, yes. You know, when you're in a play, here's what I do, though. I am very aware of the fact that people think I'm a playwright now. So I don't do that often. I don't just come up in there doing that right away. I make sure that first I try to do the job at hand. I do believe, I know how it works now, that that playwright has dramaturgs, has a director has, she's sitting there watching it every day she's gonna see what's going on I don't have to tell her now if we get way into it and I really know my character by then it's four weeks in we've starting pre- previews I know who I am you know and I know what we're doing I know what I'm doing I know what I might need then maybe I might suggest I haven't I didn't do it to Susan Laurie, but you know Maybe I didn't do it to Lynn Nottage, but maybe you might suggest, hmm, what about A, B, or C? If they say yes, fine. If they say no, well, that's you, and this is your play, and this is what you're running with. Hmm. But, you know, in the the rehearsal room, everyone has a say. I've never been in a rehearsal where no actor could say anything. Mm -hmm. Actors always speak and talk and give and take. I've always done it in all my plays before um, I even wrote anything, in the musicals. I, I originated a lot of those. Ah, I remember on a Mark Shaman musical that I did, um, I, the, right before the night before we started. Oh, my God. The night before the first preview. What's I, the show? It's called, um, what was that show? Dementos. Uh-huh. And, okay. um And Mark Shaman wrote this. No, Mark Shaman wrote the music. Mm-hmm. Someone else wrote the the book. But I realized that everyone had a monologue, and then they sang their song. I was the only one. Who had just a song. And as I got to do rehearsals, as I went through rehearsals, I, 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 I knew my character. I said, guys, why don't I have um, a, a, a monologue? They said, we didn't really know what to, what words to put into the mouth of this little young black prostitute. I said, well, you know what I do? I happen to have this monologue that I've written, I've been playing with. I wonder if, this is before I even wrote a play. I wonder if you could try this. They said, well, Charlene, I don't know. The whole cast would have to come in and rehearse. I've already asked them, guys, if we could do this. Hmm. The cast said they would do it. We had the rehearsal. I put it in. And it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) There's always give and take in the rehearsal room. If you have proven that you're you're worth it Hmm. i think uh you don't i don't really have any ideas about anything until i've created the role i Hmm. don't really have much to say in the first second or third week
2: Hmm. swinging
0: back to your own work a bit you've within your plays there is i would say always political issues without being overtly political particularly in in terms of race mm-hmm. and the relationship to society and you had the opportunity to work with Athol Fugard mm-hmm. who has probed that as well and i'm just wondering in that experience whether whether there was his his experience in south africa and your experiences in the us whether you ever spoke about those no Hmm.
1: No, we never compared them. No, we only dealt with South Africa on sorrows and rejoicings. Yeah. And it was really an honor to get to work with Ethel.
2: Hmm.
1: I had, oh, he'd been my hero for decades.
0: Well, you told the story of when, uh, I think when you were first sawing Misbehaving, or no, you went to see one of. Fugard's plays at Manhattan Theater Club and Ain't Misbehaving was happening in the other room. That's
1: right. That's, so, right. That's so, right.
0: So your, your instinct was to go see the Fugard go see that one? And and I, did, I never up,
1: saw the workshop of the musical. Huh. And I ended up in the musical.
2: Hmm. Yes.
1: And it took me all these all decades before I got to, uh, to do one of his plays. Huh. You know? But I did. Hmm. And that was an experience because Athol directed it. So, and he brought all of his South Africa and I, and I learned, and when the first day of rehearsal, I said, Athel, I'm, I'm going to do the read through with the, um, with the dialect, the colored dialect. He looked at me and says, oh no, don't even bother with that. He said, because no one ever gets that dialect and, um, I don't want to, I don't want it to insult my ear. And I was like, okay. And then I did the read through without the dialect, which was awful. And then three days later the dialect coach came. I worked with the dialect coach. The dialect coach told him she's cool. And then I started working with the dialect. Mm. And pronouncing these you know, those those words with the Dutch from the Dutch. And, the, the, and he's like one day she just said, My God, man, where did you learn that pronunciation? You know? But before I came to do his play, I worked with a South African woman who had a colored nanny. And she was an actress and she knew exactly what that dialect was. Mm-hmm. And she shared it with me. And I worked with her for a month before I started rehearsal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. It was something I really, really wanted to be in his world. Mm-hmm.
0: To come back around to the Night Watcher, and we've talked about this to some degree, but you spoke of forty children in your life. Mm-hmm. Um you don't tell the stories of all 40. No. Are there stories that you wanted to tell that you had to let go for this piece?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Re- really. Um, one of the stories, I, call, I called it uh, Lily. I had a neighbor, Lily, who was a Lebanese Jewish woman who uh, lived next door f- for all my you know 17 years. And we were friends. We went to the same manicures, and she always invited me for Shabbos on Friday because she had like four sons and they had big families, and they all came. The grands, everyone came Friday for dinner. I was always invited whenever I wanted to come. It was really great. And uh, Lily died. And I told the story of um, how she and I of that big Lebanese funeral and how those people mourned and how her three grandchildren stood up and eulogized her and told her entire story and how the, the the sons picked up her coffin and carried her up a hill and then there were like uh, maybe 12 uh, shovels and they all shoveled they were sobbing and weeping and shoveling burying their grandmother, putting her to rest after they told her whole story. And there I was. The story is like that. And I'm, And then when it was over, I went to my guy the next day to have my eyes done in Beverly Hills, <laughs> my brows, and he was, I couldn't stop crying. He says, darling, how can I? You're just you, all this, you're crying. And I told him, you know, I'm, it's funny. It occurred to me, being at her funeral, Who's going to bury me? Who's going to tell my story? Who's going to lift me up?
2: (laughs) Hmm.
1: I was just living with that for a minute. And that story was in the show. And then, as I kept developing and developing and developing the show, I answered the question. So I took Lily out. Hmm. You see? Um, Sometimes, if you do it right, you don't have to have an absolute story in there for it you find that you can weave them in a way so that that question is answered.
0: Well, the sense is very clear from The Night Watcher Mm -hmm. that you,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: many, many, many years from now, will have a lot of people to lift you up because you've you've affected them. I know you said you just finished the work of the playwright and now you are just the actress and as we're talking, it's just before the press comes in and and all of that begins, Uh but... um, I want to ask, you'd said earlier that you'd been away from writing for a, a long time before you did this one.
1: Uh, writing For, for, uh, for writing for a your, solo
0: piece. For a solo piece. In, mm-hmm. fact, in
1: fact, I thought, three is enough. That's all you need mm-hmm. in the theater. I'm done. Mm-hmm. If Catherine had not called me that day, we would not be sitting here today. Mm-hmm.
0: And so this also reminds me, we, we've skipped over Flight because you have written a piece That Mm -hmm. was for many actors. They've all been for many characters, but Mm -hmm. that was for many actors. Why did that piece need more people than you?
1: That was a commission Mm -hmm. from the Mark Taper Forum for PLAY, Performances for LA Youth. They commissioned that. They wanted uh um a story uh, that uh, i adapted african and african american folktales i wove it into a story and um that's my flight um it was a commission mm-hmm. and um
0: but since they weren't your personal stories you didn't need to, to i created to,
1: a story for them in mm-hmm. order to tell the in order to have a night of storytelling right because in flight a little boy it, it's, it happens during slavery Mm -hmm. And a little boy is being taught how to read secretly behind a shack by his mom. The mom is found out and is sold on the spot right then and there. Mm -hmm. And the little boy is traumatized to see his mother shackled, put into the back of a wagon and driven away. The community comes together. The little boy runs away and goes up a tree. And the community comes together to bring him down. And they want him to come down on his own. And um, so the wise woman decides, well, we will share some stories. Stories that... Because, you know, stories... African Americans and Africans have always told stories. Griots have told stories to teach, to heal, to uh, encourage, to give you joy. Storytelling has many purposes. And that night... They use it to heal not only this little boy up the tree, but the community, mm-hmm. because they all have been robbed of a very big, big spirit in their in their lives. So, and in the most vicious way. So they tell these stories and stories and stories until the sun comes up, and finally that little boy comes down.
0: Mm-hmm. So with the night watcher into its run writing complete do you feel the urge yet to start telling more stories or will it take some time Hmm. before the next ones come or does somebody have to commission you uh, you
1: know what no i'm already telling stories i will always tell stories i really i just spent a a really lovely uh time in the dressing room uh, of stunning and i told those ladies i said y'all i might we might have to write about this experience of the four of us in this dressing room every night before we went on to do this outrageous play. <laughs> hmm. And they said, "Yes, Charlene, please. And can we all play our own parts?" I said, "Absolutely." Hmm. You know, who knows? There's a story in everything. You know how you could walk down Broadway from 72nd to to um to to uh, the public theater and write a play about that. Because there's a story everywhere. I'm always telling them, you know? Because life entertains me, and I'm always observing. I'm always listening.
2: And
0: on that note, I'm going to say, as someone who watched you in The Night Watcher as auntie to so many children, from someone who is uncle to six girls, Hmm. only one of whom is a blood relative, (laughs) Thank you for that play, and thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
0: Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.